Um, today's Easter. It's kind of a big deal, isn't it? We celebrate that Jesus has risen from the grave. We celebrate that he rose victorious over sin, rose victorious over Satan, rose victorious over death. We celebrate that in him there is forgiveness of sins. If there's no Easter, there's no Christianity. If Jesus doesn't raise 2,000 years ago, then there's nothing that we do here of any value. In fact, later in our text that we're going to look at today, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says we're most to be pitied if Jesus did not rise. Um, this morning, I, I have one purpose, and, and the purpose is, is to articulate just the basics of the Christian faith. I want us to know what Jesus did, why he did it, how we trust in him, and what real faith looks like. In essence, we're going to take the testimony that you just heard and, and flesh it out a little bit. Now, the purpose, it really has two goals. Um, first, if you're a Christian, my goal is that you'd be strengthened in your faith, um, I pray you'd be reminded of the weight and the beauty of the gospel. I pray you'd be reminded of, of our call to share the gospel and to make disciples. And, and I hope that your heart would be full of joy this morning as we reflect and remind ourselves of what our Savior has done. Now, if you have not trusted in Jesus, if you're here because you've been invited, if you're here and you have no idea why you're here, for some reason uh, you finally said yes, or God uh, has brought you sovereignly through these doors, uh, I pray you would wrestle with the testimony of God's word today. Now, I'll tell you I'm biased. I I make no no, uh, shame of that. I want you to trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But if at the end of today you say, no, then my hope is you would know why you say no and what the implications would be. Christianity is not something that we can brush aside. If Jesus truly rose from the grave, then we must wrestle with what that means. One author said this, no matter what we currently believe, we must all confront Christianity the most widespread belief system in the world with the most far-reaching intellectual footprint and a wealth of counterintuitive wisdom concerning how humans should thrive. Tyler Vanderveel, professor of Harvard, he says this, any educated person should at some point have critically examined the claims for Christianity and should be able to explain why he or she uh, does or does not believe them. And so that's what I want us to do. I want us to just walk through the gospel, look at what Christ has said, what happens if he actually rose from the grave, what does that mean? What does that imply? And then if you choose to say no to that, you need to know what those implications and what that would mean. And so that is my desire, just to go over the gospel, to refresh our mind of why we stand here today, and it's such good news that we say Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. So if you have your Bibles, I'll encourage you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And the page number is at the top of your bulletin. If you do not bring a Bible, there are white Bibles in the chairs in front of you, and if you do not own a Bible, you can keep that Bible, and it can be yours. One thing we do here as we read God's Word is we stand, and so I'm going to invite you to stand at the reading of God's Word. We do so because we believe God's Word comes to us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, comes with His full authority, and has the power to change and transform us. So we're going to read the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 15. 
The chapter numbers are the big numbers. The verse numbers are the little ones. Chapter 15 says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. And God, we, we praise you that your son has risen from the grave. We praise you for the redemption plan that you have set forth. That through the sending of your son, his crucifixion and his resurrection, our sins would be paid for. We, by faith in your son, could be saved and have everlasting life. Lord, I pray that we would know that truth today. I pray we would rejoice in the fact that you have risen from the grave. I pray that our hearts swell with joy. And God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the word that you have given us that, that explains to us what you have done, that reveals to us your character, that tells us who we are and what our sinful condition is apart from you. God, give us understanding today. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So we're, what we're going to do is we're going to walk through the text. Now what we do each and every week is we walk through scripture. Normally we walk through books of the Bible. Um, we walk through them uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We do that, so we, we cover everything. Uh, we don't like to jump around a whole lot, although in the next series we actually will be doing that. Uh, but typically we walk through book by book uh, so that we would see all that God has said in his word. And so that's what we're going to do this morning in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, and we're going to start out, and we're going to notice that it says the gospel is something received. Verse 1, Paul says the gospel is something the church received. So Paul preached, and they received the message that he spoke to them. And if you look down at verse 11, the bottom of the passage, we see that preaching and believing are connected. So when the word is preached, there are some who believe. That's the point that Paul is making. And the reason preaching and sharing is so important is because real faith comes by hearing the Word of God. Which is why when, when I stand up here, or if you're at any church, it does not matter what I say if you can't see it in the Word. This is the most important thing. I have nothing good to tell you of myself. Maybe some DIY tips. Maybe some helpful things. Um, but it's only God's Word that gives us life, that transforms us is that of any matter. So when we come and we gather, one of the purposes is to come under the Word of God. 
And what we understand is the gospel is not something that is found inside of us, but is what God has done and recorded it in the Bible so that we would know. Which this means then that the gospel is not a mystical experience that we have by ourselves. The gospel is not something that you're going to discover if you go on a long walk in the woods or if you like to hike Mount Rainier. The gospel is not something that I can find deep within my soul through meditation. The gospel message is an objective truth that we must receive, not discover within. Now this is important. It's important especially because of the culture that we live in. Our culture has idolized the word story starting probably about eight years ago. That word story has picked up a great deal of momentum here in America. Our culture shouts from the rooftops the importance of your story. You'll hear things like, your story is important. Your, your story needs to be heard. Your story is valuable. In fact, there are hashtag movements that have spread like wildfire, emphasizing the importance of your story. And, and I would say there are good things that have come about because of that. It's not all negative, but there is a problem also. And one of the problems is that we have placed such an emphasis on our story, on my story, that it, it becomes the lens in which we see and evaluate everything else. My story becomes the meta-narrative in which I judge the world. The emphasis on my story has placed me at the center of the solar system. And if we believe this, and we believe that everything revolves around us like the plants do around the sun. And if that is true, then God if we believe in him, becomes a planet out there that revolves around us rather than us revolving around him. But the problem is, we don't have the power, the worth, the might, or the knowledge to hold all things together. Let me think about that. Can we actually, can our story in our lifetime explain the realities of all things around us? And if we are at the center of the solar system, then that means we have become the sun. We've replaced the sun, and we illuminate everything else. But that would be like replacing the sun with like a seven and a half watt light bulb, like one of those little night light bulbs. Not even LED. You see, our story is not big enough to illuminate the world. Our story is not bright enough to fill the world with color. And our stories were never meant to be the meta-narrative that we live by, meaning the big, grand story. But what if our stories actually fit into another story, a much grander story, an actual meta-narrative like the one we have in the Bible? And if that is the case, then we're not the main characters, but supporting characters. And thus, our story is only beautiful and valuable when we see it within the much grander narrative that we are in. The story of the Bible is that God is creating a people to live with him, to worship him, that he would share his infinite love, his joy, and his glory with. But the problem is we're sinful. The problem is we reject him. The problem is because of this, we're not able to be actually in the presence of God. And so what does God do? He sends his son, Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's the biblical story from beginning to end. God creates a people. They sin. They're separated from him. How is God now going to create a people who will dwell within his presence? Which when you get to Revelation chapter 21 and 22, we see the, the end of the story that he has done it. That there is a people that now live in the new heavens and new earth with him. How does that come about? Through the gospel of Jesus 
Christ. And so what Paul is going to do in this letter is he's going to explain to them in a very succinct form what it is that Jesus has done. And so that's what we're going to look at today. And we're going to see that gospel is what Jesus has done. It's not about what we do. Verse 3, Paul says he delivered only what he received. And he describes the message as first importance. If you see, he says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received And then he walks through, in verses 3 through 5, what this first importance is. So we're going to look at them one at a time. There's four things. Number one, Christ died for our sins. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. The Bible says we're born sinful, meaning we naturally rebel against God. We seek to live for ourselves rather than for the glory of God. We seek to make ourselves the very center of our stories. That's sinfully what we want to do. We want everything to be about us. If you go all the way back to garden, to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. Satan says, you don't actually need to follow God. You can be at the center of your story. You can be God. And that is the lie that we wrestle with on a regular basis. We seek to make ourselves at the center. and Because of that, we are under the very wrath of God. And we have no hope of saving ourselves. And, and, and if there's a, a wall of water 100 miles wide and 100 miles um, high, and it's coming at us at 100 miles an hour, we have absolutely no possibility of escape. We will be crushed by it. But the good news is it says Jesus comes. Now Jesus is the Son of God. He comes as a man so he would be able to stand in our place and take our punishment. Now, we must understand, Jesus comes as a man. He's not Superman. You remember Superman? You remember his, his earth name? Anyone? Clark Kent, right? Clark Kent pretended to be human. He walked amongst us, but was he really human? No. Could he actually be a substitute for humanity? No, he's not human. So he would be an unfit substitute to stand in our place on the cross. We need an actual human to be able to do that. But a human is not able to then absorb the wrath of God for all those whom he will save. And so not only does he have to be man, he must be God. Which is why Jesus comes. That he would be 100% man, 100% God, stand in our place. So come back to this wall of water, 100 miles high, 100 miles wide, 100 miles an hour coming at us. The cross of Jesus is like the ground opening up before the wall of water comes and it opens up and swallows the entire wall of water so that not one drip of water would even splash upon us and that's what Jesus does. That there would not be one drop of his wrath that we would experience if we've trusted in him because we've been fully forgiven. That's the gospel. That's the message of the cross. That he comes to die on the cross for our sins, so we could be saved. But that's not all. Next point, we see Christ is buried. Now, what's the importance of the word buried? Ever think about that? If he died, why do I need to say he's buried? Well, the burial proves the death. We don't bury alive people, not intentionally often. Um, 
I don't think we do. The Romans, now they're expert executioners. We must know this. They knew how to keep someone alive when they're torturing them. They knew exactly what they could do to bring the point to, to bring the person to an inch of death and keep him alive. And they also knew exactly how to kill a person. When you go to a funeral and you see someone in a casket and they're lowered into the ground, the fact that they're being in a casket and lowered in the ground is evidence that they have died. So the word burial functions to prove the death. That's, that's what Paul is doing here. And he's going to do that with the next couple verbs also. Next we see Christ was raised on the third day. That's the miracle. That's the miracle that we're here for today. That's Easter. He raises from the grave. Jesus does not stay dead. He was buried on Friday, rises on Sunday. Now, why is it important? Other than the fact that anyone rising from the dead is kind of noteworthy. The resurrection of Jesus proves he truly is the Son of God. The resurrection of Jesus proves that by his death, he paid the debt for our sins. The resurrection proves that all that Jesus said and did was true. He's not a fake. He's not a mystic. The resurrection proves that his sacrifice was acceptable. If Jesus came and said, look, I'm the son of God. I'm going to die for you and your sins are forgiven. And he just stays in the grave. What do we know? Was it? Was it not accepted? Was it sufficient? Was it not sufficient? But the fact that he rises from the grave proves his death was sufficient to pay for the sins that we have. In fact, later on in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul will then tell us it's because Jesus rose that we know we have assurance that we also will rise from the dead. That death does not have the last word. Do you know that? Because Jesus defeats death, we're told that if we believe in him, we have that new life in us. His spirit is with us so that death Death is not the end of the story. You see, Jesus saves us to live with him forever in new heavens and new earth. That's the point. We begin in a garden with Jesus. Sin separates us. We end in a city that fills the entire world where we will dwell with God forever. God sent his son Jesus so that we would be with him forever. Never again to be separated because of sin. And then we see the word Christ appeared. Just as the word buried proves Jesus died, so the word appeared proved he was raised. If I said, hey, this guy rose from the dead, great. Can I see him? No. You'd be like, well, did he? Did he not? How do we prove this? So it matters that that we have the word here appeared. Because we can go and check and verify the resurrection. In fact, what Paul says here. He says um, in verse 3, 4, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Now, why does it matter that most are still alive? If I told you, look, this guy rose from the dead, 500 people saw it, oh, they're all dead. Yep, but just believe me, they're all dead. Would you believe me? You might kind of go, eh, I don't know. Rising from the dead, kind of fishy, right? But he says, look, there are 500 people. Some have fallen asleep, meaning some have died, but most of them are alive. Paul is literally saying, go check. 
I'll give you their addresses. You can call them. You can stop by, have a little meal with them, ask them what they saw. That's literally what he's saying. In the first century, within 20 years of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul's literally saying most people are still alive. Go look. Go check. See, the resurrection of Jesus is not a secret. The resurrection of Jesus is not without evidence. The resurrection is a historical, verifiable event. And so if we believe that, that changes everything. In fact, Paul wants us to understand that, which is why he uses the word appeared four times. He appears to Cephas, he appears to the twelve, he appears to the five hundred, he appears to Paul, he appears to the apostles, he appears to James. He gives all these people that he's appeared to. Hear this, the resurrection is a historical fact. There were countless eyewitnesses that could all verify the validity of Jesus' resurrection. You only need two witnesses in a court of law to make a claim about anything. And here in our text, Paul's saying, I got over 500. Check them. There are other reasons why also we can believe that Jesus rose from the grave. And these are just kind of for fun. Um, Number one, in the Gospels, we read that women were the first witnesses to see Jesus alive. Now that, that doesn't actually mean much to us today. If a woman says she saw something today, we believe her. But in the first century, the testimony of a woman was equivalent to that of a toddler. You just don't believe them. That was the first century culture. The woman says he rose. Nope, not going to believe that. I need a man to tell me. That was just how it was. And so why would the biblical writers ever say that women saw Jesus as the first witnesses if that was not true, it wouldn't make sense. Historically, at that time, that would be facetious to even come up with. So the very fact that they wrote it and that it was unthinkable proves that it had to have happened. Secondly, after the death of Jesus, the disciples go off into hiding. They're, they're scared, running, thinking, if they killed the Messiah whom we followed, it only serves to think that they'll probably also kill us. But the crazy thing is, after the resurrection of Jesus, the book of Acts records what the apostles do. And they go preaching the gospel at even the cost of their own lives. One writer said this, The early church erupting from a small group of dispirited and cowardly followers of a crucified rabbi cries out for an ignition spark. What happened? Something had to have happened to turn cowards into bold preachers in the first century that they were willing to die for it. Now, if you deny Jesus, you must come up with a plausible reason how and why these scared disciples became so bold, so bold that they preached Christ even at the cost of their lives. You must come up with a reason because it's historical documentation that says this is what has happened. So what turned these cowards into bold preachers for the gospel? you got to come up with something. What we see according to the word is it was the risen Jesus Christ. Now third, this one comes from our text. The twice Paul says in accordance with scriptures. We see that in verse 3. We see that in verse 4. The death and resurrection of Jesus was not a chaotic event. In fact, the entire Old Testament looks forward to the birth of Jesus, looks forward to the life of Jesus, looks forward to the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and looks forward to his second coming. 
Like the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament was all about lambs being sacrificed on an altar. And what we read is that these lambs all, all pointed to a much greater lamb, Jesus, who says that he's the lamb of God, that he's come to die for our sins. The prophets in the Old Testament looked forward to the death and resurrection of Jesus. In Isaiah 53, which we already looked at during the, the worship time of singing, it says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here, 700 years before Jesus comes, it's prophesied he's going to come and bear the sins so that we could be forgiven. Hear this, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came and he took the punishment that we deserve. He paid the debt so we could be forgiven. So we began by talking about story. The story of the Bible is that God's creating a people who will worship him and live with him forever. The Bible's made up of 66 books, but it's not 66 different stories. It's one story with about 40 different authors told about over about 1,800 years, and it all is focused on revealing Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior who came, who died, and who rose. John Locke, the 18th century philosopher, says this, Our Savior's resurrection is truly of great importance in Christianity, so great that his being or not being the Messiah stands or falls with it. If Jesus didn't raise, we have no point being here. It would be better for us to be on the lake, on a beach, on a boat, doing anything but this. But if he did come and he did rise, then there is nothing greater than worshiping our Lord Jesus Christ. So how is this gospel message received? So this is the gospel. Jesus comes, the Son of God, as man, as God, to stand in our place, take our sins, three days later, rising, proving he actually did it. How do we receive this? What do we need to do to earn this salvation? Well, verse 9, Paul says, he is the least of the apostles, unworthy of even being called an apostle. Now, Paul wrote half the New Testament. He wrote 13 books. So why does he say, I'm the least of the apostles? Well, we read that in verse 9. He says, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called, be called apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. See, Paul hated Jesus. He wanted nothing to do with Jesus. He wanted nothing to do with Christianity. He hated Christians. In fact, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7, we see Paul holding the coats of the men who are stoning Stephen. Stephen is recorded as the first Christian martyr in, in the Bible. Paul conspired against Christians. He contrived plans to kill Christians. He conspired with others. He condoned the death of Christians. He was a murderer. He was a terrorist to the church. So how is it that Paul then becomes a Christian? How is it that his life gets transformed inside out? Verse 10, he says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, he attributes everything to God. He says, the reason I am what I am is because of grace. Remember, we're sinful. 
Sinful people, we cannot please God. We can't even come into his presence. There's no earning our way. There's nothing that we can do to pay for our sins. Our good works do not impress him. God doesn't look at us like a professional scout does a college team trying to pick the ones he wants. Ooh, that one's really good. Mm, I like the way he acts. Ooh, that one's got skill. I potential over there. Now you're all wondering, like, was he pointing? Maybe. Um, but he's not looking at us like that. We add nothing to God. For God to be God, meaning he gives life to everything and he receives nothing. He's not dependent upon us at all. We are wholly dependent upon him. That's what it is for him to be God. Salvation is simply by his goodness. All throughout the Bible, we see God saving people. See, he wants to come hear it. <laughs> all throughout the Bible, we see God saving people from all different kinds of walks. All different. We got Abraham. And Abraham, who in the book of Joshua, we told, was an idol worshiper. God saves. Rahab, the prostitute in the city of Jericho, God saves. Ruth, a Moabite, a despised people. She was saved and brought into the genealogy of Jesus. Paul, a murderer, a terrorist of the church. God, by his grace, saves and turns upside down. Jason and Justina, as they stand here today, God, by his grace, one saved at an early age, one saved at a later age, both by grace. If you're here today, what we must understand is this gospel comes to us not because of what you do. There's nothing about what you do. Everything here, when we go through these verses, it's what Jesus has done for us. It comes to us by grace. So hear this. Do not let your past keep you from trusting in Jesus. Do not believe the lie. I've done too much. I've done this. I've done that. God wouldn't want me. God's grace is sufficient to cover all sins. Do not think that your sins are greater than the blood of Jesus. There is nothing that his, sin, that his blood does not cover when we come and receive his grace. So what I want to do now is I just want to say, so what does it look like to actually believe in Jesus? We see what the gospel is, is that Jesus comes, he dies, and he rises victorious, giving us life all by grace. So what does it mean to believe in him? If you're here today and say, okay, so, so what does Christian life look like? Do I, simply say, do I simply say a prayer and I'm in? Like, Jesus, I'm a sinner, that's bad, I want you. Is that, is that enough? Or maybe we say it a little prettier, like maybe, maybe flesh it out a little bit, use some, some biblical terms. So just so you know, next week we're starting an entire series on the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is, is really just a statement of faith that's been used ever since about the second century to, uh, that believers would use as a means of proclaiming and testifying that they believe in the true Son of God. And so we're going to walk through that for the next several weeks, um, probably through June, uh, and that whole, that whole series is all about what is it that we actually mean when we say, I believe. So for the much bigger answer, you can come back next week, or if you're just wanting to know more about Christianity, the next series that we do, which starts next week, is all about what it is that we believe as Christians. 
But what does it mean right now to believe in the gospel of Jesus? This is an important question. There are so many people who think that salvation is simply a verbal profession of the tongue and that no change in life is necessary. Many people profess Jesus and live just like they've always lived. There's no transformation. But the gospel is about making us new. Paul will write in the book of Ephesians that that we're all dead in our sins, but when God's grace comes upon us, we're made alive. There's a big difference between dead people and alive people, right? Go over to the cemetery, take a walk, have a conversation, see who talks back. Like, it just doesn't happen. There's a big difference from when you're walking and talking. And so, just as we're to think of the physical difference there, there's a massive spiritual difference. When the Spirit comes upon us and we're saved by the grace, we are made new, turned inside out. You see, when we receive the grace of God, the Bible says we're spiritually alive, we're given the Spirit, we're transformed from enemies to friends, from rebels to sons. So to believe in Jesus means much more than simply to profess the profession of with our mouth is really the physical demonstration of what's taking place within our hearts. See, being a follower of Jesus means that we bow and submit to the rule of God within our hearts. It means we acknowledge what he says in his word that we truly are sinners, that we've rebelled against him, and that it's only through Jesus that we have forgiveness of sins. It's realizing that my story is not the grand meta-narrative, but Jesus is the meta-narrative and trusting in him as my king, as my Lord, and my savior. Being a follower of Jesus is not about being a spectator and watching others. It's getting on the field and it's living like Jesus. To believe in Jesus means we no longer think that, that we are paramount, that everything revolves around us, that we're the son, but rather Jesus is the son. And everything revolves around him. Two reasons from the text we see this. Verse 10, Paul says he is saved by God's grace, and that grace was not in vain. If you look, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, referring to the apostles, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Now, Paul's not saying he's better than the other apostles. He's simply saying, my life is evidence that I've received the grace of Jesus and I believed in Jesus. Notice the last line in verse 10, the grace of God that is within me. Everything Paul attributes to God's grace, nothing to himself. We don't begin the Christian life with grace and end it with ourselves. Everything is grace. And so Paul shows us that the evidence of the Christian life is to now live for Jesus. He said, and his grace toward me was not in vain. So he's making a contrast. I, I lived for him. It wasn't in vain. If the, it was in vain, then I wouldn't actually live for him. There would be no transformation in my life. But the fact that now I live for him, and I preach him, and I share him, and I've done <coughs> more than the other apostles, that's all evidence of God's grace in me. When God's grace comes upon us, it transforms us that we would live, not that we'd be stagnant. Look back at verse 1 for the other reason. Paul says the Corinthians are now standing in the gospel. The word stand means they are established and rooted in the gospel. In verse 2, Paul says, if 
you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believe in vain. So again, we have the word vain. Unless if your belief is empty, unless if your belief has no substance. So he says, in essence, the faith of the Corinthians is evidenced by the fact that they hold fast to the word. You want to know if you're saved? Do you hold fast to the word? Do you persevere? Vain belief, empty faith, does not stand in the gospel because it, it's not been transformed. It's not truly believed in Jesus. It's lip service only. Real, authentic faith is that which perseveres and follows after Jesus. It's learning about Jesus so that we'd live like him and love like him. That's the basics of the gospel. Jesus came, he died, he was buried, he rose, he appeared. We're saved by grace. And the faith that believes in Jesus is a faith that we're transformed so we'd live like him. So then the question is, is do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you know that you've trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Do you know that your sins have been forgiven? Now, if you say no, then I would simply ask, why? What objective, logical reasons would you have for rejecting Christianity? Now, you might say, well, I believe Christianity is a way, just not the way. There's a lot of people who say that. Sounds very humble, right? Well, you know, there's a lot of options out there. Who am I to say one is better than the other? But that statement is not logical, and really it does a disservice to every single belief system. Because at the heart of all belief systems, they have core beliefs. And core beliefs of any system will be at odds with another belief system. Like when Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. When Jesus says that, he's not saying, I am a way. There's a lot of ways up the mountain. You can go that way, or this way, or this way, and if... If I make the most sense to you, choose me. No, he's saying all these other ways are wrong. I am the way. Jesus is making a very exclusive claim at this moment. I am the only way you get to God. And so according to Jesus, there's, there's not other ways. And really according to any belief system, they're going to say that whatever they believe is, is true, which then we're called to weigh the evidence. So we must not say, well, he's just a way. Because that's not logical. Now perhaps you say Jesus was a good teacher. I'm just not sure he was the son of God. Now you can reject Jesus, but we cannot call him a moral teacher. He's either far greater or far worse. To call him a moral teacher is to go back to our superhero analogy, which we do oftentimes here. Um, it's, uh, It's calling Jesus like Batman. Not Superman, but Batman. What is Batman? Now, other than being a DC comic, therefore not of any importance, uh, it's Marvel or nothing, really. In my house, there is no DC at all. But for um, terrible illustrations in sermons, DC works quite well. Um, so Batman is a guy who seems to be able to do everything, right? He is a person, a human, just seems to be better than every other guy, has more abilities, but that's not what it is to be God. Jesus says, I am the only way to God. I'm the only way to God. See, Batman, he's just an extraordinary individual. Extraordinary, extraordinary individuals can't pay for your sins. 
Extraordinary individuals can't say, I'm the only way to Christ, or I'm the only way to God. Extraordinary individuals can't say, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will not see death. Extraordinary individuals can't say, I am the good shepherd, I am the door, I am the light of the world. They can't say those things unless, if as C.S. Lewis says, the teachings of Jesus are either an egotistical maniac, so he's a crazy person, an evil manipulator, he's seeking to seduce people after a cult, or he's actually God in the flesh. So we can't just water down his teaching and say, well, he's just a good moral person. No, he's not. He's either completely crazy, he's evil, or he actually is the Son of God who rose from the grave, who forgiveness of sins is found in, and we can experience by the grace of God. So I want to encourage you today, if you're unsure about the gospel, if you're sitting here going, I just, I just don't know, I, I would encourage you to pick up the Bible, like what we saw in the beginning. God speaks through the Bible. Pick up the Bible, maybe start in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Those are the gospels. Those are the parts that, that specifically talk about the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And I would say just with arms open, say, God, if you're real, help me to believe. Come to the word and asking God to help you. If you do believe, I pray your faith is strengthened this morning. I pray you're reminded of the truth that the Easter matters. It matters every single day. If Jesus did not rise, then what Paul says later in 1 Corinthians, we are most to be pitied because we're worshiping a dead guy. And he was not the son of God. But if he truly is the son of God, then he rose from the grave, and that changes everything. So what we're going to do now...